great privilege to actually know the King of glory, to be able to worship Him all because of what He's done for us. So while you're standing, we're going to uh, read Daniel 9, 24 through 27, the passage we're going to be in, aloud together like we did last week. So I'm just telling you that so you don't sit down after we pray. So if you'll join me together, let's look to the Lord. Father, thank you so much for your grace that's been extended to us, that has made us holy, that has made us acceptable before you, that grants us access to your throne, and that provides life eternal for us. We're so grateful. This morning as we look into your word to understand you more, we pray that you would instruct our hearts, that we would see Jesus and see your plan for your people Israel and your plan for us, that you'd be glorified as we leave here refreshed, encouraged, and strengthened in our faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's le- read this aloud. This verses will be up on the screen for you, so read loud. We're going to read slow, with feeling, and out loud. So let's start with verse 24. Ready? Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing." And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Great job. You can be seated. As you're getting settled, go ahead, if you're not there already, turn in your Bible to Daniel chapter 9. This is where we are going to be this morning. If this is your first time with us, I'm going to let you know we have been working through uh, the book of Daniel verse by verse for many, many months now. Last week, we just sort of dipped our toe into this prophetic scripture, and we looked at the setting of the prophecy, the setting of the prophecy. Gabriel told Daniel in verse 24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. So he tells us that the time frame for this scripture that we just read aloud together is identified as 70 weeks. And we saw last week that these are not weeks of days, but rather 
weeks of years. If they were weeks of days, then the events in this prophecy would be fulfilled in just over a year and a half, which did not happen according to history. So these are weeks of years, which makes the time frame of this prophecy 490 years. Now Daniel knows that the Babylonian captivity is almost over. He learned this earlier in verses 1 through 3 by reading the book of Jeremiah. And based on previous revelation in chapters 2 and then chapter 7, Daniel assumed that when the Jews returned to their land, that Messiah would come and establish his kingdom fairly quickly, perhaps in just one or two generations. But in this particular prophecy, God was saying to Daniel through the angel Gabriel, Daniel, I know that you think the final eternal kingdom will be realized fairly soon. But I want you to understand that a period of 490 years has been decreed to unfold before that. So you need to understand what is going to happen first. And so Gabriel gives the setting of the prophecy as 70 weeks of years. Now as we continue in verse 24 this morning, we see two additional details about this prophecy. Secondly, we see the subject of the prophecy. Now Gabriel not only gave Daniel the time frame for this prophecy, he also informed Daniel who this prophecy would be for. He indicated that it is not a prophecy for all mankind generally. It is a specific prophecy decreed for a specific people and for a specific place. Look again at verse 24. He says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. Now, who were Daniel's people? Were they the Babylonians? Were they the Medo-Persians? Were they the Greeks or the Romans? No, no. Daniel's people were not Gentiles. They were Jews. What this means is that this prophecy is not about the Gentile world. We've already seen prophecies about the Gentile world. It's not even a prophecy about the church. The church, at least at this point in history, was still a mystery. This is about the Jewish people. It's about the physical descendants of Abraham through specifically Isaac and Jacob. It's a prophecy about Israel. Unfortunately, a growing number of people today believe that after Jesus was crucified, that God permanently rejected the Jews. And these people see the church as having been sort of amalgamated into Israel or even as replacing Israel. Now, when Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah, God did temporarily set them aside. And ever since Jesus' ascension into heaven, the focus has now been on building his church. However, God did not permanently cast off Israel or reject Israel. We know this because Paul says in Romans 8, verses 1 and 2, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And then here's Paul's answer. 
by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And then notice this. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. You see, God's relationship to Israel is not over. He has a future for his chosen people. One day, Israel is going to turn to God for salvation and will be restored. Romans 11 verses 26 through 30 says this, And in this way, notice this, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards to the gospel, Paul says, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You see, God has made specific promises to Israel that require a future fulfillment. The promises that God made in the Abrahamic covenant and in the Davidic covenant and in the new covenant will one day all be literally fulfilled for the people with whom those promises were originally made. But in Daniel, the prophecy isn't just about a specific people. Gabriel says that this prophecy is also about a specific place. It is about, he says, Daniel's holy city. Well, what was Daniel's holy city? It wasn't Babylon. His holy city was Jerusalem. And Gabriel discloses that within a, a time frame of 70 weeks of years, several things will happen to Jerusalem. He indicates that during the first weeks, the first seven weeks, which is 49 years, Jerusalem and its walls will be rebuilt. Then after the second period of 62 weeks, which is 434 years, there will be an undisclosed amount of time where the Messiah will be killed and Jerusalem will actually be destroyed again. And then halfway through the final 70th week, Sacrifices and offerings in the temple in Jerusalem will again cease. So the setting of the prophecy has to do with 490 years. And the subject of the prophecy is the nation Israel and the city of Jerusalem. This leads us thirdly to the objectives of the prophecy. This is what we want to focus on this morning. Look again at verse 24. Gabriel said to Daniel... 70 weeks, and we noted that these are 70 weeks of years, 490 years, are decreed about your people, the Jews, Israel, and your holy city. And what are the objectives? Notice they are to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. These are 
the six objectives. Now, the basis for these objectives is what Jesus accomplished at his first coming through his death on the cross. However, the final realization of these objectives awaits what will happen at Jesus' second coming. So these objectives go way beyond Israel's restoration to the land after they're released from the Babylonian captivity. They actually look forward to the full and final restoration when all Israel will be saved. So let's look at the six things God is going to accomplish at the end of these 490 years. Notice the first objective. It is to finish Israel's rebellion. Now, if you remember, the thrust of Daniel's prayer in verses 4 through 19 was to confess the sins of his people Israel. For instance, he said in verse 5, To God, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. He goes on in verses 9 through 11 and says, We have rebelled against him, that is the Lord, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. So Daniel's confessing the sins of his people. He knows that the captivity is almost over. And so he's, he's acting, standing there as an intercessor, crying out to God to, to cleanse his people. And while Daniel's confessing Israel's sin, Gabriel shows up and he says that one of the purposes for the events in this prophecy will be to finish Israel's transgression. Now the word finish indicates here that Israel's transgression one day will be done away with forever. The word transgression is singular and it literally means the rebellion. So what, to what transgression or what rebellion does this refer? Well, how many of you know that for its entire history, Israel has been in rebellion against God? Even now, Israel as a people is living in a state of rebellion against Jesus as Messiah. This is the transgression. This is the rebellion. And Romans eleven twenty five 25 states that this rebellion is because a partial hardening has come upon them. Listen to what Paul says. He says, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Notice this. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That period known as the fullness of the Gentiles will, will actually end at the end of the 70th week. So this partial hardening refers to the fact that while many, many individual Jews have been saved over the past 2,000 years, as a people, Israel has remained hardened against Jesus. However, one day, this will no longer be the case. In fact, Paul says in the next two verses of Romans 11, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob and this will be my covenant with them 
when I take away their sins. Isn't that great? Paul isn't making this stuff up. He's actually quoting from Isaiah 59 verse 20, which points to a future day when Jesus will return and Israel will repent of their transgressions and turn to him. Isaiah 59 20 says, And a Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. This refers to Jesus' second coming when he will banish all ungodliness from his people Israel. So when Christ returns, after the 70 weeks of years, Israel's transgression will finally be finished. The Lord Jesus Christ will provoke his people to repent by pouring out a spirit of grace on them. And in that moment, the Jews will look on the one whom their people crucified and they will repent of centuries of rebellion against the Messiah. This is what Zechariah 12 verses 9 through 10 says. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Notice this. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. You see, when Jesus returns, every eye will see him. And the Jews who are alive at that point will repent and weep over who their Messiah was that they had killed, who now is their king. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, referring to Jesus, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Then it says this, Even those who pierced him, referring to the Jews. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. So when Jesus returns, Israel will repent of their transgression. They will believe on Jesus and God will remove their sin. How is this even going to be possible? This is possible because of what Jesus accomplished for them at his first coming when he died on the cross. You see, Jesus' sacrifice for sin provided the basis for Israel's transgression to be finished. And so when he returns, after centuries of rebellion against God, Israel's transgression will finally be over, and they will be saved. That's the first objective. Notice the second objective. It will be to put an end to Israel's sin. Now, the idea behind this phrase, to put an end to sin, means to bring something to a successful conclusion. During the tribulation, just before Jesus' second coming, a lot of people were going to die in judgment. And two-thirds of the Jews who were alive at that point are going to die. But when Jesus returns, he's going to save the remaining one-third who repent and trust in him. Zechariah 13, verses 8 and 9 say this. In the whole land, declares the Lord. Notice this. Two-thirds shall be cut off and perish. And one-third shall be left alive. What happens to that one-third who's left alive? Notice this. God says, I will put this third 
into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. And notice the result of this refining. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. This is only going to be possible because of what Jesus accomplished at his first coming on the cross. Hebrews 9.26 says that he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. How? By the sacrifice of himself. So at Christ's second coming, the Jews will look upon Jesus and repent. And they will experience the fulfillment of the new covenant promises that are found in Ezekiel 36. In Ezekiel 36 verses 26 and 27 says this. God speaking to Israel, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So one day there's going to be an end of sin for those whose lives were bound by sin. God will put his spirit in them and they will follow the Lord. Ezekiel 37 verse 23 says, They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. Notice this. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and I will cleanse them and they will be my people. And I will be their God. Isaiah 27 verse 9 says, Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sins. So when the 70 weeks of years are completed, Israel's transgression will cease, and their sin will be put to an end. And then what is said by Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 31, 34 will come to pass. God says, I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. But notice there's a third objective of the 70 weeks of years. And that is to atone for Israel's iniquity. Now in the law of God... The sins of God's people were atoned as they offered animal sacrifices. As Phil mentioned this morning during the observance of the Lord's Supper, these sacrifices temporarily covered sin for a time, but they had to be continually offered so that the people's sin remained covered before God. However, Jesus came as the Lamb of God who what? takes away sin. And when he was crucified, the blood of his righteous sacrifice satisfied God's righteous demands about sin. His death in the place of sinners provided atonement for iniquity. Jesus' sacrifice was so perfect and so complete that there will never again be a need for sacrifices to make Sinners acceptable to God. His death completely satisfied God's justice and it thoroughly appeased his wrath. But while Jesus 
once-for-all-time sacrifice is a past historical event. It is actually experienced in real time by all who trusted in Him. So for many of you, that atonement became a reality the moment that you were saved 10 years ago or two years ago or just six months ago. So Christ's atoning work on the cross in the past becomes fully realized by every sinner the moment that that sinner believes. And at the second coming of Christ, Jesus or Jews who believe in Jesus will experience God's atonement for their iniquities because of what Jesus accomplished at his first coming on the cross. And when he returns at the end of the 70 weeks of years in Daniel, all Jews will look to him and be saved. At that moment, their transgression will be finished, their sins will cease, and their iniquity will be atoned. And when Israel experiences this, the next three objectives in Daniel 9.24 will be realized. Notice the fourth objective. It is to bring in everlasting righteousness. You see, Jesus' death on the cross not only finished transgression, put an end to sin, and atoned for iniquity, it also made possible for God to bring in everlasting righteousness. Now back in Daniel 9, verse 7, Daniel said, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. However, when Jesus returns, it won't be open shame that belongs to Israel. It will be God's righteousness. You see, Jesus' work on the cross made righteousness available to everyone who believes. But it also made it possible for everlasting righteousness to reign on the whole earth. Jeremiah 23 verses 5 and 6 promises this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Notice this. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Now this hasn't yet been fulfilled because Israel rejected Jesus and Israel remains in unrighteousness even until this day. However, after the 70 weeks of years end, Christ will return. And Israel will experience a righteous relationship with Jesus for the glory of God forever. Isaiah 60 verse 21 says, Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands. Why? That I might be glorified. Notice a fifth objective that will be realized. It is to seal both vision and profit. What does this mean? Well, this indicates that there will be a day when all that has been revealed by God through his word will be fulfilled. Now, John the Apostle notes that during the first half of the 70th week, two witnesses are going to prophesy to Israel. Revelation 11 verse 3 says, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, notice this, and they will prophesy 
for 1,260 days. That is literally three and one-half years. However, when Jesus returns at the end of the 70th week, there will be no further need for visions and prophecies. Why? Because at that point, Jesus Christ will be present with his people. So vision and prophet will be sealed up. Notice there's a final objective. The final objective is to anoint a most holy place. Now in the Old Testament, the temple was where God met with his people. However, we learn in this prophecy that during the first 69 weeks, after Israel rejects and crucifies Jesus as their Messiah, the temple in Jerusalem will be destroyed. And history tells us that that occurred in A.D. 70 under the Roman Emperor Vespasian and his general son, Titus. And there's not been a temple in Jerusalem ever since that day. Jesus had said that not one stone will remain upon another. And those of you who have been with us to Israel, as we go to the Temple Mount, you see that all that's there is this big platform and then the wart of a mosque sitting right where the temple should be. Now, today, we, the church, are the temple of God. However, after the 70 weeks have ended for Israel, the Lord will return and he will bring salvation to his people and he will set up his kingdom and he will anoint a physical temple in Jerusalem. Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48 describe every detail of this future temple. And it's this temple and specifically its most holy place that will be anointed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in what sense will it, will be, will it be anointed? Listen to Ezekiel 43, verses 4 through 7. It says, As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up, this is Ezekiel talking, and brought me to the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, by the way, this man is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus in the vision that Ezekiel sees. And so he continues, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. So he said to me, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. So the very presence of Jesus Christ himself will fill and anoint the temple at the end of the 490 years. And he will dwell there in the midst of his people. people. Ezekiel 37 verses 26 and 27. God says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. Notice this. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. All of these prophecies are anticipating fulfillment in the future. Has God forsaken his people Israel? Not permanently. 
He has a plan for them. So we've seen that the setting of the prophecy has to do with the 70 weeks of years or 490 years. We've seen the subject of the prophecy is for the nation Israel and the city of Jerusalem. And we've looked this morning at the objectives of the prophecy which are based on the finished work of Jesus Christ and accomplished that were accomplished at his first coming and will be fully realized when he returns at his second coming. Now next week we're going to get into the substance of the prophecy and we're going to consider what happens in the various divisions of this 70-week period. And there's three of them. But before we close, I want to just give you a, a visual picture of the 70 weeks of this prophecy and sort of help you see how it fits together. Now, in the 70-week prophecy, there's three periods of time that are given. And within these three periods of time, specific events are said to happen that indicate when each period begins and when each period ends. Now, what you see up there is the first period. The first period is said to last for seven weeks of years or 49 years. It began with a word to build and restore Jerusalem. Well, when did this occur? It occurred in 444 B.C., where King Ahasuerus authorized and funded Nehemiah to build the walls of the city. And this first period ended when the rebuilding of the city was complete. That's the first period. The second period is said to last for 62 weeks of years, or 434 years. Now, what's amazing about this is nothing is said or revealed about what happens during this period except for the glorious event that it ends with. And it ends with the coming of the Messiah. And we know that this occurred in A.D. 33, which is actually 483 years after the word to restore and build Jerusalem went out. So the first two periods cover 483 years or 69 of the 70 weeks that are decreed for Israel and Jerusalem. So those are the first two periods. Then, after the close of the 69th week, there is an undisclosed period of time where several things are said to happen. First, the Messiah that came, which closed the first 69 weeks, the Messiah who came was cut off. This refers to Jesus' crucifixion. The second thing that happens is that Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed. And we know when this happened. It happened in A.D. 70 by Rome. And third, Gabriel tells Daniel that war and desolations are <clears throat> decreed for Israel. They're going to go through hard times during this undisclosed period of time. There's going to be calamity and hardships. And they've experienced that for the past 2,000 years until even today. Now, these things happen after the 62 weeks, but before the 70th week. Finally, there is a third period identified in the prophecy. This is the final week that will last, that lasts for seven years. We know when this final period begins. It begins with a Gentile ruler making a strong covenant. 
This covenant will allow Israel to um, build a temple in Jerusalem and to institute sacrifices. Nothing like this has happened since A.D. 70. When the temple was destroyed, there's not been a temple. But this will be short-lived because three and a half years into the treaty, he will break that treaty, causing the sacrifices and offerings to cease. This Antichrist figure will then defile the temple and make things desolate again. And then three and a half years later, at the end of the 70th week, God will destroy this Antichrist. This will happen when he returns at his second coming. And when Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom, the six objectives of this prophecy that we looked at this morning will all be fulfilled. At this point... In the kingdom, transgression will be finished, sin will be ended, iniquity will be atoned, eternal righteousness will be brought in, vision and prophet will be sealed, and the holy place will be anointed. So God has a future for Israel. That's exciting. And since all of God's promises for Israel have not yet been fulfilled, it means that one day they will be. And the time of their fulfillment will be after the 70 weeks of Daniel 9 when Jesus will return and set up his kingdom on earth. Well, that's great for Israel, but what about us? I know a few of you are Jewish. But most of you, like me, are Gentiles. We're part, we're part of the church. What about us? While God has a glorious future for Israel, understand he also has a glorious future for us as his church. Amen? He's redeemed us for himself, and he has given us great and precious promises. One day, Jesus is going to come for his church, and believers who are alive at that time will be taken home to be with him forever. And believers who die prior to that event will immediately be in the presence of the Lord and live eternally with Him. We have an incredible inheritance in Jesus Christ. One day, everything that we only see dimly now will be on full display then. We will be perfectly like Christ. We will have glorified bodies that will never decay or experience any of the effects of sin. Our struggle with temptation will be over. There will be no more sorrow. We will experience a full and complete joy. We will never again experience fear or anxiety or jealousy or depression or anger. Throughout history, throughout eternity rather, we will not only want to do what is right, but we will only do what is right. And our greatest joy will be the fact that we will be with our Savior in a perfect place, with perfect bodies, living a perfect life that will never end. So if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've got a glorious future. But if you don't yet know Him, you can entrust your life to Him today. You see, by turning from your sin and believing that what Jesus accomplished on the cross was sufficient to make you acceptable before God, you can become a follower of Christ. And this glorious future that awaits all believers 
will be your glorious future as well. This prophecy has a lot to say about the future for Israel. But behind the scenes, during certain aspects of this prophecy, God is at work in us as his church accomplishing his purpose. Because God has a glorious future for us as well. Thank you, Father. Thank you for sections of Scripture like this that, while difficult on the surface, are actually very, very straightforward and plain and give us great hope and encouragement about the future. Pray for those who do not know you that they would see that what Jesus came to accomplish through his crucifixion was not only so that Israel could be saved, but so that they could be saved as well. They would call upon him for mercy and confess him as Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.